Welcome, David. Thank, uh, thank you. you for joining me in this afternoon, even though it's so sunny out there. Um, so I wanted to pick up on um, a conversation that we had about travel. And I mean, particularly, I was very interested in your time in Paris and what you did as poet in residence for Shakespeare and Co. Right? But um, I'd like to talk about travel in general. Like, why is it that writers travel? More specifically, why is it that American writers have traveled to France and even more specifically to Paris? Because I think from the very beginnings of the USA, Paris has been entangled with the cultural history of this country. I mean, Benjamin Franklin spent 10 years there. Jefferson spent more than 10 years there. All the early writers that I can think of, Hawthorne, Irving, they spent time in Paris. And then throughout the 19th century, you had people like Henry James who loved Paris. And then, of course, after the First World War, you had the lost generation of almost every major American writer uh, went to Paris and spent time there. Um, Paris was very influential amongst African-American writers. Um, so many of them went there. Um, James Baldwin and Richard Wright died in, in France too, right? And then there's the Beat Generation. So one might say that at the core of American cultural history is Paris. That's almost like the other American cultural capital, right? So I'd like to ask, like, if we might focus on um, the generation after the First World War, Hemingway, Gertrude Stein, um, Scott Fitzgerald, you know, those, those writers, why did they go to Paris? What lured them there? What, what did Paris have that the USA didn't have? Yeah, listening to the litany of writers who traveled from the US to France and Paris specifically, you remind me that they sort of started it, right? The greatest book on American politics ever written was written by a Frenchman right. traveling right. in America. Right. So the notion that you go somewhere else and see maybe more clearly by virtue of that perspective starts with, an, I can think of a number of Europeans. Charles Dickens has a fascinating book about traveling around the U.S. Uh, Oscar Wilde. Yeah, Trollope did too. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, mm -hmm. so Europeans started going to the New World in the 18th, 19th centuries, uh, sometimes to see what we were doing, sometimes to look back over their shoulder and see from a different perspective what their life was like. Some of the most fascinating reflections in Tocqueville's book are about, oh, what does European uh, aristocracy look like now that I'm here in a democracy? And I think he began to see aristocracy differently because of his time. My sense is that something similar might have been happening for the American authors that you were talking about. Um, Many of them continued to write about America and American themes, but almost needed a, a distance to do that. Um, I think one of the earliest and most influential early sort of between the wars and after World War II writers to go to Paris was Gertrude Stein, who set up a salon there, championed artists like Picasso. You know, she was going down to the market and buying Picassos for $50 so that he could eat. <laughs> um, and when other Americans, younger Americans came, they would find Hemingway. She was an early editor of Hemingway's writings. So she gave them encouragement and support and created the foundation for an American community. And, you know, Stein's famous for having grown up in Oakland, where about which she said, there's no there there. So maybe that's why she went to Paris. She was looking uh -huh. for a there. <laughs> what does that mean? 
that there's no there there. Yeah. Um, I think it means she wasn't looking closely enough, but she was able to see what she couldn't see in Oakland when she got to Paris, because one of her most famous books is called The Making of Americans, and it's a 900-page novel about mm -hmm. America, but she wrote it in France. Uh, it makes me think about, not an American author, but Joyce, whose most famous novel about Ireland, Dublin, uh, was written in Paris. Uh, why did Joyce have to spend seven years writing a novel about one day in Dublin in Paris? Why did he have to leave Dublin to do that? Samuel Beckett, why did he write most of his books in Paris and France and in, in French? French yeah. In French, and then translated them from French to, to English. He translated most, but not all of his own books. I think he said somewhere that uh, because his books were about an essential experience of alienation, he wanted to write in a language which wasn't his own to capture that feeling of not being at home. And I think mm -hmm. there's something about not feeling at home in your surroundings that maybe forces you to turn to writing in a more intense way. Um, mm -hmm. So whether it's Hemingway, Fitzgerald, any of the sort of lost generation writers who tend to write a lot about America, you mentioned Baldwin. Baldwin was writing a lot of American-based mm -hmm. books. In fact, just recently I finished reading provocatively titled Baldwin's maybe most famous novel, Another Country, which starts in New York, moves to France, returns to New York, and the last line of that novel is where he was when he finished writing it and the date that he finished, and that was Istanbul. So in order to write about both New York and Paris, he had to go to Istanbul. Um, mm -hmm. what, what is it about needing a certain distance from the thing you're writing about that allows you to see it more clearly? Mm -hmm. That's intriguing to right. me. So, so if it's about distance, if it's about, in a way, finding a new set of eyes to look at home through, why Paris and not, say, Istanbul or Tokyo or even something like London? Mm -hmm. I suspect that at different times it has been different places. Shortly after I graduated from college, which is over 30 years ago, a lot of people in my generation were going to Prague. And people were saying, oh, Prague is the Paris of the 90s. Um, some of it, frankly, is is rather mundane. There, there have been times, now is not one of them, when Paris was extremely attractive to American travelers because it was inexpensive. You could live a very good life in Paris. Mm -hmm inexpensive apartment, wonderful food, great culture, museums, things that they didn't have on offering if you were, say, T.S. Eliot working in a bank in the Midwest somewhere. Um, but I think as these places become creatures of the imagination, uh, they become more expensive and harder to get. And the very things that may have drawn a first generation of starving artists becomes more elusive and harder to find. I know by the time I got there, I was really kind of riding on the coattails of a certain romanticism. I was going because other people had gone. Um, mm -hmm. I was able to find ways to make and meet on $800 a month or so, or whatever I could earn teaching English lessons. But it wasn't, it wasn't the same things that brought people there in the 30s and 40s, I suspect. Mm -hmm. It was my imagination coupled with certain realities. Um, but I, I wanted to see something new, experience yeah. something different. Yeah. What inspired you to go to Paris? Probably the writers that I love the most. Um, not all American writers. Um, Proust. I, I fell in love with Proust's novel early on and was fascinated by his descriptions of Paris and the streets. When I remember the first thing I did when I got to Paris is 
I wanted to go to the Champs-Élysées where Proust had played as a child. It was nothing like, or mm. I should say not Proust, well, probably Proust, but Proust narrator, provocatively named Marcel, played. Um, now it's a big street, but it used to be a giant garden where young French kids played. So mm -hmm. Victor Hugo, the descriptions of the Paris sewers had completely captured my imagination. Um, so I would say it was both French, also a lot of South American writers. Julio Cortázar wrote a fascinating book set in Paris, Hopscotch. So I was kind of driven there by my literary imagination. Uh -huh. So for you, it was a literary pilgrimage. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's a good way to put it. Yeah. How long were you there? Uh, about nine months. Uh -huh. And I showed up with $2,000 in my pocket and started looking for a place to live and a job and managed to be there for nine months before I was taking a break from graduate school. So eventually I knew I had to come back, finish that, write my dissertation. But this was a real nice opportunity to take, again, to take a step back at some distance. Mm -hmm. The irony for me about being in Paris is I had lived abroad several times before when I wanted to learn Spanish. I moved to Spain for a year. When I wanted to learn German, I moved to Germany for a year. And I had a great time and learned a lot of Spanish and a lot of German. So when I thought, oh, I've, the dissertation I wanted to write was going to feature a number of French authors. So I thought, well, I should move to France and learn French. And I learned almost no French at all living in Paris. It's not a city uh -huh. you go to to immerse yourself in the life of French people. The French people who I was close to were my English students. They wanted to speak English with me. Mm -hmm. you, and, you, you think that was true of the American writers who went to Paris? Because I get the impression that they, go, they went around the same little international artistic circles. I, that's yeah. the impression I get yeah. as well. Um, a lot of the French artists were also not necessarily French. They were a lot of, mm -hmm. from, they were from Romania, they were from Hungary, Hungary, Hungary. Hungary. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So they were coming from their own places of exile. And there was a kind of lingua franca, which was maybe not so much English as the art world. Mm -hmm. People like Tristan Sara, um, Hugo Ball, Marcel Duchamp was French, but I always think of him as speaking in English. He mm -hmm. did a number of interviews in English. He lived in New York for a long time. Yeah, he was a big part of what was the, of what you might call the cross pollination of the art world between New York and Paris. Yeah, the the Russian emigres too. Sure, right? yeah. um, Diaghilev, all the uh, the composers. Right. So, so if Paris was um, at that time, you know, I'm thinking the 1920s, 1930s, a kind of international cosmopolitan center for the arts in general, where you could find a community that would be supportive of and interested in new work, adventurous work. Was, did that play any part in attracting the American writers or were they looking for something French? That's a good question. And I'm not sure. I know, for example, if, if we think again, not of the American writers, but Joyce, Joyce who got taken up by Sylvia Beach, who helped him publish Ulysses. He was looking for a place where there'd be more tolerance for his own artistic experimentation. But he was really working within an English-speaking community there. Uh, there were a lot. Uh, Eugene Yolas, I think his name was, um, was organizing literary circles and readings. And I mean, you asked about how did I end up there? I was lucky enough to find both a place to live and some work at the Shakespeare and Company bookstore, which was being run by a, a guy named George Whitman. Mm -hmm. who claimed that he had inherited the store from Sylvia Beach. He also claimed that he was a great-great-grandson of Walt Whitman. 
Um, I don't think either of those were probably true, but he wanted to create a kind of romantic yeah. myth around the bookstore, which was not located where Sylvia Beach's mm-hmm. bookstore was. And So an American myth. Yeah, an American yeah. myth. Yeah. Uh, but he had friends. He was very good friends with Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who had opened City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco. And he, George Whitman, wasn't one of the beat writers himself, but he knew beat writers. He was from that generation. And he wanted there to be that sense of an American expat literary community. And that was sort of my job there was finding writers, English speaking, English writing writers living in Paris and organized readings that would happen at the bookstore and publicizing those and attracting people to come and participate in a community that he really wanted to see flourishing. But it still felt to me very much like it was a homage to an earlier time. I didn't think the most interesting writing happening in the English language in the late 90s was still happening in Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, it was sort of running on a, a strong legacy of history, but it wasn't where the cutting edge things were happening the way they had been for the writers yeah. we were talking about earlier. Yeah. I'm, I'm struck by the memory of how easy it was to travel when we were young. I mean, we would just go, right? We would save up a little bit of money and then we just go. I had friends who would work their passage across the Atlantic or across the uh, Pacific even. They would go up to docks and they would walk up from ship to ship mm-hmm. and, and ask them, do you need a hand? They'd get, they'd get on, they'd be hired and they'd go over to Hong Kong, right? Um, but it was, in those days, it was so easy for us to go. Um, we wouldn't have to have anything set up beforehand. We'd just go, present ourselves and try to get a job. I, mean, I, I was... I wonder to what extent travel like that has become impossible today because of technology. The first trip I took all by myself alone, I graduated from high school, I was you know 18 or so, and I had bought a car very early because I lived out in rural Oregon, which I think was another big incentive to travel. Growing up in rural Oregon where you really had to live through your imagination. We had one good movie theater, we had two radio stations. I grew up in a house without a television had access to the public library, and that was it. That was all the culture I was going to get. So I was so eager to discover the world beyond Oregon. And I remember buying a car on my 15th birthday, selling it right after I graduated from high school, taking that money and going to Europe. Mm -hmm. And I managed to sort of just kick around doing odd jobs and things for about nine months. Started in Europe, traveled through Turkey, at the time, there was some political turmoil in Iran. This was during Carter's presidency. We had those hostages. So I had to fly over Iran into Pakistan and then traveled from Pakistan all through India for about three or four months and ended the trip in Nepal. But um, that entire nine or 10 months that I was away, no phone, never picked up a phone. There was no such thing as email or personal computer. Mm-hmm. So every communication I had was in writing. I wrote letters every day. I mean, you have all day. You get up in the morning. What are you going to do? So I just wrote. Mm -hmm. I wrote to my high school girlfriend. I wrote to my parents. I wrote to my sister. I wrote to friends who had gone off to college after high school. And now you would text or send an email or check Mm -hmm. in. So to have been completely unplugged from everyone I knew in the world for 10 months, have no contact whatsoever except for the letters I wrote, was I I don't think we live in a world where that would be possible anymore. As you describe it, you know, many American writers uh, must feel as if they're in some kind of backwood or province, and, and they have a, a myth of Paris, right? The, the, a, city, a myth that has been built up over probably about 150 years, 
right? But Paris is not that old as a cultural capital. Mm -hmm. It's not like Rome or Florence. So, so this myth has been built up about Paris, and the myth is connected to art, to writing, maybe to music. And on the other side, I'm thinking the French, the Parisians, maybe also have a myth about Americans, right? So, so there's, there's a, a mutually cozy relationship based on romanticization. Yes, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm jumping around a bit, but I'm thinking of the Wim Wenders movie, Kings of the Road, uh, and the European fascination with the American sense of space and the desert space particularly. We have so much space. And for the European imagination, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, when I got to Paris, it wasn't vast space. It was these intensely sort of labyrinthine roads and places where a car could barely fit through. I, I think the fascinating thing about the myth of Paris is how much of it is purely imaginary and how much of it is, is, is actually real. And a lot of it is real. Paris is stunningly beautiful. And the myth feeds because whether it's 1930 or 1990, looking at Notre Dame at four in the morning when you've been out all night on the river and it's foggy and you look through and you see the cathedral through the trees across the Seine is, that isn't made up. The beauty of Paris is real. The museums are real. The music is real. So I can remember going to like a Frank Zappa concert on a houseboat on the river. Um, mm -hmm. That sort of thing wasn't happening in rural Oregon. Uh, mm -hmm. I can remember staying out all night, drinking a cheap $2 bottle of wine with a loaf of bread and some cheese on the river with a group of people. Those sorts of opportunities, those are the things that keep the myth alive and give it a kind of real tangibility. It's yeah. such a beautiful city. And uh -huh. that isn't an artifice of history. That's still the case. Yeah, I mean, you're saying that the myth is real. It's right. both real and not real. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> a myth that's not real at all can't survive. But yeah. a myth that has enough grounding in reality just keeps renewing itself for each generation in different ways. Yeah, but say if you're there and if many of these American writers are there and most of their friends are expats and they move around the expat circles, right? And they, and they, they don't work in Paris necessarily. They don't have many Parisian friends. They don't go for dinner at Parisian homes mm -hmm. like this. Then in many ways, I think, wouldn't it be true to say that they're living the myth? Yeah. Right. And, and you're saying it's a livable myth, but it's not, not a myth. <laughs> It's a livable myth if you're young and you're willing to walk up six flights of stairs to spend the night on yeah. a cot in a floor with a bathroom down the hall. Um, if you can not not put up with those hardships, but sort of revel in them because you feel like you're somehow dipping into history, then it, it's livable. But livable and sustainable might be different things. You know, yeah. What I did at 30, probably not what I'm going to do at 60. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if you'd been there for 10 years, maybe the myth would have changed, right? Sure. So, so it's it might be different for writers who stay there for a couple of years than for writers who stay there for more no, than well, 10 Well, you years, mentioned right? James Baldwin, who's yeah. a perfect example of that. The reasons he went to Paris, I think, were political and social and artistic. And he found freedoms in Paris that America wouldn't afford him. But he lived there a long time, and the longer he was there, the more the burning feeling that he had to come back to America, that the work he wanted to do had to be done in America and about America. But he, he spent enough time there that the myth became his daily life, and his daily life started to 
he started thinking about Harlem and about New York mm -hmm. and about a different kind of life he had to live. So I think there is a big difference. Fitzgerald never spent a lot of time in Paris. He would dip in, live a kind of romantic myth for a year or so, or just a few months, visit his friends, and then go back. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's very different ways to be an expat. When I think about so many of the Europeans who came to America, especially the Jewish intellectuals in the 30s and 40s, they weren't necessarily here because they wanted to be. The ones who ended up in California to go from Germany to California for people like Thomas Mann or Theodore Adorno was not a romantic myth. It was a dire necessity. Yeah, but I'm thinking, say, if you if you go from if if an American goes from wherever they are in spacious America to Paris, right? So that the Parisians, there's something mythical about the American, right? And so and so, especially in the 30s, they would welcome the American. As, as exotic, maybe a noble savage, you know, or something, uh -huh. right? It's an innocent. Uh, and, and so they, they welcomed the American. So the American would be taken into this uh, expat community as a myth, as part of a mythical reality. And the American would live in a mythical reality, right? The Paris, the Paris of the books, the Paris, the Paris of the old daguerreotype photos, right? The, uh, um, that's the Paris that you want. That's the, that's the Paris that you see that communicates culture and what serenity of some ways, you know, old. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, the, the yeah. Paris of uh, Eugene Atke's yeah. photographs. Yeah. So, but then if you're in the myth and you never quite get grounded, Let's say you never you, you don't marry a Parisian who has to live <laughs> in Paris, you know, so, so you, and you don't have to work there. Then, then one one striking thing about about that way of being an expat, that way of travel, is that the myth is like a it's like a tube that connects you back to your own country, right? You can just slide back down the tube. It's 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 easy to get back, mm -hmm. right? You know, so so if so if you're thinking of seeing home through the eyes of your new place, in a way, then one of the key Keys to that is that is that it's easy to go and it's easy to get back, right? as opposed you know so you always know where you are, you're, you're located in some mythical frame, whereas the other kind of travel that you've described to me when when you took your trip to the east, well, I wonder if we can talk about that now. That seems to be without the same kind of mythical frame, because you had you took a circuitous route. Tell tell us about that. What inspired you and. How did you get out there? Yeah, I mean, again, it, it has its roots in growing up as a kind of bookish kid in rural Oregon, where I, ha I lived a lot of my life through books and through reading. And I think this is something you and I have touched on before. I stumbled on Somerset Maugham's novel, The Razor's Edge, which had been made into a movie starring Bill Murray, who, which, for, you know, for a kid in the 80s, he was like my comic hero. Mm -hmm. And um, so I saw this movie where he's not playing a comic role. It's a serious, dramatic role. And I had read the novel, and I just became fascinated with India. But I had no idea how I'd get there. Can, can you say, can you say um, what the novel is about for those who sure. haven't read it? So The Razor's Edge is about a young, very privileged American young man uh, right before World War I who wants to volunteer, ends up going to World War I. He becomes an ambulance driver, and he just sees horrific death. And it shocks him out of his sense of privilege. Uh, and so he ends up actually not in India, but in England. Uh, and he's working, I think, in a mine and just trying to like root himself at a kind of working sense sensibility, which that didn't exercise much romanticism for me. I grew up in a working class mm -hmm. sensibility, especially in, in rural Oregon. But 
He meets a, a guy who lends him a copy of the Upanishads. He falls in love with the book and he decides to go, he'll go to India. And so the second half of the book is, or about, I'd say the middle of the book is his spiritual journey through India. Right. And, and uh, the, the, title, the, the title comes from the Upanishad. Exactly. Right? It comes from the Kata Upanishad. Yeah. Is it the Kata Upanishad? It's the Kata Upanishad. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so again, for me, 18, 19 years old, um, the first thing I did was see if there was a copy of the Upanishads in the Eugene Public Library. Mm -hmm. There wasn't. <laughs> there was at the university library, but I couldn't check it out. So I remember having to sit at the library table and read it there because I didn't have a library card because I wasn't a mm -hmm. student. Um, but I made it to India uh, and started reading these books, the Dhammapada, the Buddhist Discourses, the Tao Te Ching, which has nothing to do with India, except for I was able to get one of those Penguin Classics mm -hmm. editions of it. Um, now, now you just, so you just took off for India? Well, I started in Europe, and, and I kind of made my way gradually east from Europe through Turkey. My goal had been to travel overland all Train? the Train? Train or bus, yeah, uh -huh. mostly buses. Like, again, the, the romantic image of riding on the roof of a bus in India, like, that's a real thing. It's probably right. still today. Right. You and did it and you It's survived. not so romantic. It's like, <laughs> oh, there's no room inside. So you got to be on the roof whether you mm -hmm. want to or not. Um, the, the image of hiring someone to push you onto a train because there isn't enough room, but you can hire like this big burly guy yeah. who shoves you in mm -hmm. and that's how you get your seat. Um, but again, for me, it was very tied to things I had read and to a certain relationship to reading that I was trying to cultivate, which for me goes back to where you started us. How do we think about the relationship between travel and writing and how does travel create a space and a distance which makes a kind of writing possible? Obviously, right, travel is not the only way that writing becomes possible. Yeah. But I think some forms of writing can be fueled or, or nourished by some forms of travel. Mm -hmm. well, to take a to take a step back, um, so so some the Razor's Edge. I mean, it's an extraordinary novel. Somerset Maugham was read by many people in the in in the twentieth century. Right sure. up, up until yeah. about nineteen seventy, he was a very well-read author. He was he was an extraordinary writer. And the Razor's Edge is about a man who essentially rejects Paris and everything that Paris mm -hmm. represents, right? Yeah. And, um, and then chooses to go to India. Um, and this is, this is sort of an interesting kind of uh, reversal. I had here. forgotten how yeah. important the Paris sequence is yeah, in the Racer's a, Edge. Yeah. yeah, I was just thinking about the America, London, India, but yeah, yeah. there's a very important yeah. part. And, in, and it's a characteristic Paris. move. I yeah. think even um, in T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, which is arguably the most important modernist poem in, in English, The Wasteland starts with a portrait of what looks like Baudelaire's Paris, mm -hmm. right? And and Eliot wrote that part of it in um, in Paris, right? He, yeah. he was in France, yeah. right? And then the end of it ends up with data diadvam damyata in in the Upanishads, right? It's yeah. deep in the Upanishads. So this turn from uh, the center of Western literary culture to to India, it's it's a it's a very characteristic trope of of modern literature, and you did both, mm -hmm. right? So so when it, so this other side, so, so one side of American culture is, is kind of infatuation with Western Europe, uh, centering in Paris, maybe London, maybe Italy. Um, but then this other side is this fascination with the Upanishads that Emerson had, that Thoreau had, you know, that, that runs throughout 19th century American literature. Um, and, and then culminates in you, right? So, <laughs> so you, so well, now that you put it that like way, that way. So, so you read the Razor's Edge, and then you were actually inspired to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, as I said, I mean, 
I was just sort of insatiably curious, as, as I think I still am, although my insatiable curiosity, having brought me to St. John's, has turned in other directions, not necessarily towards different places on the map, but towards different places in one's intellectual landscape. Einstein's relativity, Bach's music. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what was it in The Razor's Edge that inspired you to follow that path? Because I know that Mo Somerset Maugham himself, he also was one of the writers who went to India, kind of like pre-Beatles. Right? Yeah, so, for sure. But, but it, it, it came from the sense of a lack in right. Western culture, kind of a lack of spiritual depth, right? Whatever that meant for him. And he went and spent time at the Ramana Maharshi Ashram in Tamil Nadu and, and became something of a mm -hmm. seeker. Um, so what, what was lacking for, for that side that was dissatisfied with Paris? I, I think you're right to say, and again, this when, when you describe it to me this way, I, it's like I'm looking in a mirror that I had haven't polished for a while, <laughs> that there's always been a dissatisfaction with a strictly Western secular materialist account of life and reality. Um, I felt that when I was 18. I feel that now. Um, the Portuguese poet Fernando Pessoa, who I've spent a lot of time reading, uh, has a little prose poem where he says, why can't I be a materialist? And he runs through, what would life be like if we were all really in our hearts materialists? And, and I really respond to that. Materialism, which is such a philosophical default here in the West. I mean, to the point where even a lot of people who are sort of self-stylized kind of uh, dark web gurus like Sam Harris tr really try up, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Promoting the virtues of meditation and deeply rooted in, in Buddhist studies, but wants to face all, anything that, that looks like there could be an idealist or mystical element to it. Like, yes, this is meditation, but this is meditation for Western materialists. Right, right, like, um, yeah, meditation for business success. Or, yeah, or even, yeah, yeah it, it's, it's hard for me to put my finger on it, but in the West, it seems like we can never, with a good conscience, completely relinquish the materialist demands on the way we're going to be pragmatic and practical and the buck stops here. And again, this there's... I can't talk about what India is like, certainly not to you, mm. but I could talk about what India looks like through the eyes of a kind of disillusioned and curious and restless 18-year-old. And India strikes me as the kind of place that is so rich and diverse and complicated that everybody finds their own India. Mm. And I found the India that corresponded with a kind of spiritual journey that as 18, 19-year-old I was, actually I spent my 19th birthday in Kathmandu, so I kind of mm. bridged that gap. I spent my 19th birthday in Kathmandu, my 21st birthday in Morocco, my 30th birthday in Paris. And I sort of wanted to mark those landmark dates with being somewhere I didn't feel in any way comfortable or at home. Okay. I was completely unsettled and unsure of what was going to happen next. Yeah, it's, it's that unsettling that is interesting to me. So when you go to Paris, you know where you are. You're, you're, you're on a, a physical map. You have the, a straightforward plain route. You, you're in a mythical map that you know. When you go to India, it, it seems that you decided not to go that map, whether it's a simple connecting tube to your home country. You took, I, I think, one of the craziest and most difficult routes you can take, right? So, so, so now you, you're, so you're going across Turkey? 
And so my, my trip to India started in Pakistan. I okay. flew from Turkey, from Eastern Turkey, Ankara probably, which is not Eastern, but as close okay. east as I could get from Ankara to uh, Karachi, Pakistan. And I okay. spent a few weeks in Pakistan, which was its own really interesting experience and then crossed overland into India. Bus? Yeah, oh yeah, mm -hmm. definitely bus. Yeah, and then when you crossed over to India, where were you, were you Kashmir? Yeah, I, I kind of just hugged the coast and I went all the way mm -hmm. down the west coast to down to Goa and up the east coast. And then again, it was like a 40-hour bus ride into Nepal right. eventually. Right, and so there was, there, there was no email, there were no internet cafes, <laughs> you had no cell phone, and you were practically as cut off as could be, right? Certainly. Right, yeah. so, so yet there, there, were, there was airmail, but that could take two or three weeks to reach home. Yeah, right. and then so, I wouldn't even know if it reached home. How would I know? Yeah, how would you know? Yeah. Uh, and they also wouldn't know where to write to you. Right. Right. So, so how did that feel? I mean, it seems such an alien experience compared to what anyone can go through today. How did you feel when you got to, got to Karachi? I, I think I was just buzzing for the whole nine or ten months of the trip. Every, every place I went was, you know, the, it started in Amsterdam and I traveled through Holland and Germany and Italy and Greece and from Greece into Turkey. Um, each place, like, oh, I'm in Rome. Oh, I'm in Athens. Like, th these were names that suddenly were real places. Um, mm -hmm. So just taking a walk for four or five hours was about the most exciting thing I could imagine doing. Um, it was also about all I could afford to do, so it was, <laughs> it was convenient. Uh, this was back when, you know, they, they, there were those old books, Europe on $10 a day, and so I was trying to do Europe on like $5 a day, and India on $2 a day was very luxurious. Mm -hmm. I was eating like a king, and it was, mm -hmm. you, could, you could have a pretty good life for $2 a day in India back in the 1980s. You sent me a quote uh, earlier today that has been stuck in my mind during this conversation, and it's a quote from Emerson's Self-Reliance, uh, an essay I think most people have read, but or, they, should have read. or should have read, but they might not have noticed this quote. It's about traveling. Traveling is a fool's paradise. Our first journeys discover to us the indifference of places. At home, I dream that at Naples, at Rome, I can be intoxicated with beauty and lose my sadness. I pack my trunk, embrace my friends, embark on the sea, and at last wake up in Naples. And there beside me is the stern fact, the sad self, unrelenting, identical, that I fled from. I seek the Vatican and the palaces. I affect to be intoxicated with sights and suggestions. But I am not intoxicated. My giant goes with me wherever I go. And I was very moved by this quotation in light of our conversation um, because it suggests that fundamentally, wherever you go, you're not changed because there's this, your old self that's bigger than your present self always accompanies you, even envelops you, and you leave your travels unchanged, right? So when you go to Paris, you're going to Paris in, inside a myth. You're living the myth of Paris. That's a version of living inside your old self and taking that with you. When you go to India, one might say you live in a romanticization of India and of Eastern spirituality. Uh, again, you're living inside your old self, do you think that when you travel, that, that Emerson is right? I think the risk that he's right 
is what we have to be vigilant and on guard about. You, you, while you were reading that quote, I had a flashback to a scene in a novel by Edith Wharton, The Age of Innocence, where a young couple have just gotten married and they're planning their honeymoon trip. This is late 19th century New York aristocratic society where all young people were expected to do what at the time was called the grand tour. Go to Italy for four or five, no, Italy, go to Europe, Italy, Florence, Rome, Paris for the grand tour. And you, you go to all of the great famous places, you see the sights, and then you come home and for the rest of your life, you've had that experience. Um, that strikes me as an example of your giant goes with you wherever you go. You haven't gone to Europe. You've tried to bring Europe back to you. Uh, and at the dinner party where they're planning their honeymoon trip, there's a sort of stuffed old shirt New York gentleman who says, oh, well, you should definitely include India, but you need at least two weeks to do India. <laughs> and it's said with a totally straight face. But of course, the notion that one does India or does any place in any amount of time is precisely what I think Emerson is warning us about. If you go to a place with a thought that it can be checked off and then you've done it and you have added it to who you are, as opposed to turning yourself over to it and saying, I, I want to just open myself up in some kind of radical way to what the experience of being here is like with no understanding or expectation of what that is. That's more like the experience of getting lost metaphorically or sometimes literally that you were describing earlier. The, the travel metaphor of a checklist, been there, done that sort of thing, is is I think what Emerson over a hundred years ago was aware happens all too often and it's the same risk for us mm -hmm. today. What, what, what do you have to do to break free of your giant? I'm thinking, you know, getting rid of the cell phone, turning it off, that's not enough. Throwing the maps away, that's not enough. Right? Because you're carrying the giant, the giant is you, right? Mm -hmm. That's the problem. So, so I'm gonna reach for a kind of strange analogy here. Um, but we've been talking about travel and we've been talking about writing and you're reminding me of advice that I give to Virtually every student who's writing, I try and help here at the college. And this is fresh in my mind because it's senior writing period now, or will be soon. And I've been talking with a lot of seniors about their essays. And I always tell a student, there's a crucial difference when you sit down to write an essay between writing down the idea you have and using writing as the opportunity to discover ideas you didn't know you have. And I think that's true of travel as well. Don't travel to fulfill an idea you have, which I think most of us do. We think, oh, this is what Paris will be like, or this is what India will be like, I'll go there. Um, but instead, when you write down, when you sit down to write, think, I have no idea what I'm gonna say about this book or this movie, this poem. Start writing and see what you discover that you never knew was there for you. Um, writing can be that kind of a journey of discovery. Travel can be that. Um, it's what we say about our seminar conversations. Uh, it's working without a net. Don't know where you're gonna go or how you're gonna get there. Trust the process. Have a couple hundred dollars in your pocket just in case things get really bad. And, um, or an extra couple weeks to work on your essay if things start not going where you want them to. But give yourself over to a process you haven't planned and don't fully understand. Yeah, that's that's wonderful advice. There's, uh, there's that word in Plato that 
is so rich, aporia, right. right? That 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 Socrates brings all his interlocutors to. He confuses them. He shows them how confused they are. They're flummoxed. They're perplexed, and then they brought to a standstill where they don't see a way forward, right? They don't see which way they have to go. That's that. Um, that's that situation of being lost, right? And and until you reach that point, you're not ready to know anything. And and I think the crucial moment at that point is how do you respond to that aporia? Do you panic? Do you pull back and immediately retreat to something comfortable and familiar? Or do you take a deep breath and just take another step forward and give yourself over to whatever that experience is going to unfold for you with no idea what that might be? And what is that? Is it an act of trust or an act of courage or just being willing to be completely foolish and hope you get lucky. Continuing the Conversation is a 20-episode web and podcast series produced by the St. John's College Communications Office in partnership with 12FPS and Awarehouse Productions. To continue the conversation with St. John's College, which offers a bachelor's degree in liberal arts, in-person and online master's degrees in liberal arts and Eastern classics, as well as summer academy for high school students and summer classics for lifelong learners, go to sjc.edu.